All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where we discuss the plausibility of sci-fi concepts with experts. Today, we're exploring the science behind time dilations near black holes in my favorite movie of all time, Interstellar. Joining us is Athena, aka Astro Athens, who is an astronomer and science communicator using YouTube and social media to make astronomy more accessible and fun for everyone. Stay with us to the end when Athena tackles our burning question. Is time dilation portrayed on Miller's planet scientifically accurate? Without further ado, let's get ready for another mind-blowing episode of Reality Check. All decks, prepare for hyperdrive. Activate tractor beam. Disengage tractor beam. Right, we're ready for light speed. Right, our light speed is too slow. All right, Reality Check. The science of fiction. Now, we have all seen Interstellar. But did you know that director Christopher Nolan used some original clips from a 2012 documentary by Ken Burns called The Dust Bowl? These were the interviews that were played at the beginning scenes of the movie that ended up being on the space station later on in the movie. And I think that this is just such a beautiful example of how the lines between science fiction and science fact are beginning to blur. So that is my fun movie fact of the day. And now I want to ask Athena, I want to hear some of your initial thoughts of this movie. I know we're both total science nuts and space nuts. So tell me what you think about Interstellar. I want to hear your reactions the first time you saw it and just how you feel about the movie now. I mean, like every space nerd, I'm obsessed with the movie. I've watched it probably... I'd say five times. I wanted to say 10, but not 10 just yet. I've probably watched about five times. And um, my first time watching it was actually like a really funny experience. I didn't intend to actually see the movie. Um, I was actually with a friend of mine and we were watching Sherlock Holmes and we just got so bored during the movie that we left the theater and went to go see another movie and we stumbled upon Interstellar. And were mind blown. I mean, I just like had an existential crisis. I was like, I don't remember how old I was. I was definitely like late teens, I think early 20s and um, was just blown away. And we walked in maybe like 30 minutes into the movie. But so right around the time they launch. It was, gosh, yeah. What what part was that? I mean, it was, they were still, they were still in the cornfield. They were definitely, I think, still in the cornfield at this point. Uh, Murph had just left school. Um, and I think the weird uh, gravitational effects started happening with the sand in the bedroom. And I was like, yes. whoa, what did we just walk in on? And um, yes. just mo- that movie just moved me. I mean, <laughs> like spoke to my soul from the get go. Um, but every time I rewatch it now, I feel like I'm learning something new or I'm seeing something new that I hadn't noticed before. So watching it with fresh eyes, is just like always so great. It's it's always the best, the best thing. Um, but other other, I guess, reactions about it. Um, I think what got me so excited about it was really just like the animations and the visuals of like being able to see these concepts that I had like watched lectures on that I had learned about in class, things that I've studied and read on. Um, and to see it actually visualized in a movie was just like so incredible. Um, not to like really give any spoilers to anyone who hasn't watched it. So I'll kind of go around the bush for this one, but just like, you know, near the the ends there's just a weird um thing sort of happening with the way that the ground basically is i guess i'll just sort of say that without actually giving away too much um and it just kind of blew my mind to be able to picture reality in this very curved way in a very different way than what we were used to um i totally agree i totally agree i mean it like broke my brain yeah, now that I've seen it um, so many times after having that first experience of it kind of being accidental, um, I still am just blown away by some of the animations that are in the movie, uh, specifically towards the end when they're at Cooper Station and the O'Neill Cylinder, which is that you know cylinder ball shaped uh, space station that's rotating to create artificial gravity. Um, it was so cool to just see this because I've seen like you know, pretty um, low quality illustrations done of it, uh, but never actually animated in the way like that the movie did um, to really make it look real. It felt like I was actually there. It felt like it was real. Um, so that was that was so cool. That's probably one of my my favorite parts of the movie, honestly. 
Yeah, it it truly is amazing. And it's like, again, this is why I love doing this podcast, because it's like, how close are we to those futures? And maybe that'll be another episode we do down the road. I can interview an engineer and just talk about how close we are to a space station like that. But you are here to talk about something a little bit more mysterious, a little bit more terrifying. Black holes. We know they exist. <laughs> so that yeah. part is science fact. But nobody truly knows what a black hole is. And I guess, can you just explain to us what a black hole is with maybe a junior high level explanation? Yeah, uh, black holes definitely are still such a mystery. Uh, that is totally true. I think that what's been fascinating is that we've been able to image them, or at least the accretion disks and the event horizon of a black hole, which we'll get into all that in a bit. Um, but what really kind of blows me away is that a black hole forms through the death of a star. Uh, and there are other black holes uh, that may have formed other ways, such as two black holes colliding and making a medium-sized black hole. Yeah, yeah. And this actually was confirmed recently. There actually was an observation of this. Uh, this is known as an intermediate black hole. Um, and that's like a medium-sized black hole. It's when two smaller black holes collide and they form into one, uh, which I think is actually kind of beautiful uh, <laughs> to sort of think about. But, wow. but, but with smaller, yeah, uh, but smaller black holes, like stellar mass black Black holes they're called stellar mass because it's uh comes from a star that had died and basically stars like our sun they have this nice balance this equilibrium of outward force and inward force um and so it kind of stays at its its uh, nice shape the dude of two different forces basically uh, are gravity that's the inward force pulling in and then um radiation or energy caused by nuclear fusion which is from its core it's fusing atoms together generating a bunch of energy and it's pushing outward but what happens oh. with some stars yeah 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 so so like our sun it has this nice balance between these two so it's like at equilibrium and so it's able to stay pretty stable generate enough heat for us to survive here on earth and be nice and warm get a suntan um <laughs> but <laughs> But but with um, certain stars that are massive enough, uh, really, really big, I mean, like, imagine maybe 10 of our suns combined together, all their mass, they're able to fuse bigger atoms, heavier elements, um, such as iron. Uh, but when it gets up to fusing iron atoms, it actually can't fuse anything beyond that atom. And what happens is it starts to gain a lot of mass. It's gaining a lot of mass of iron elements iron atoms and so it's getting bigger and bigger but what's happening is as it gets more massive its gravity is getting even stronger but since it can no longer fuse any more elements in its core then it's not having that outward force it's only having the inward force which is gravity so now we're not balanced anymore what happens oh. is it reaches a point of critical mass and it collapses into a black hole so that's just like <laughs> never i have never understood actually how that worked like i knew about the black hole i've seen the diagrams on instagram and like the memes where it shows like the gravity of a black hole but it's just like a joke for like my depression and it's like <laughs> so i always knew about the the gravity part but i never actually realized that there was the opposing force so that is new information to me and that's super interesting and also, I think it's really like, it's crazy how you said like our sun has that on like a miniature scale. So it's like every single sun is already sort of prepped to become a black hole one day. Possibly, and uh, not necessarily. Like our sun won't become a black hole uh, and it has to do with its size that it's at right now. Most stars that will become black holes tend to be already much more massive. Ours is um, a pretty medium-sized star. And actually, when it dies, it's going to grow into a red giant star. But what's going to happen is it's going to start to cool down as it starts to get bigger. And it's instead of it getting bigger and collapsing, it's actually going to start to shed its outer layers, like how an onion 
chef, you could peel out like the different layers of an onion. That's kind of what's going to happen with our sun when it starts to expand. And it's going to start to lose a lot of its um, outer layers, all of its elements. And it's going to puff out into something called the planetary nebula. And so it's okay. going to be really big, about a thousand light years in length. So it's going to span far beyond our solar system when it becomes uh, a nebula. Uh, but what's wow. beautiful about this is that it can, it's like a recycling process is like all of these, you know, um, layers and elements that it, you know, starts to release are seeds for new star life. And so new baby stars can start to form from these elements that came from the dead stars, such as when our sun dies. Uh, so oh. pretty, pretty cute thing there. That is cute. Cause I've always seen, like, I always loved horsehead nebula for whatever reason. I was a horse girl yeah. growing up. So like horsehead nebula and I have a special connection. And I, so I didn't realize that I thought nebulas came before stars, but it sounds like it's a cycle. Like it's like, it's like nebula star nebula. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because you're like, well, the nebula does come before the star, but then before that was also a star. So that's that's what brings us all the way to the Big Bang and trying to rewind wow. time to see what really started to, to form first, um, which actually wow. were, right now the theory is that it was um, small particles, quantum particles, bigger than that, atoms, and then uh, really, really... Um, more like molecules started to form those started to collide together and then there was like this constant kind of exploding and collapsing apparently that was uh that right now this is what i understand it is is what was happening at this time i just like to imagine it was a lot of collapsing and exploding that was happening (laughs) at the early universe uh and it was was a lot of heat uh, a lot of elements new elements were being born and uh, from that new stars were being born and then stars were colliding, forming bigger things. Um, and eventually, yeah, gas clouds, collisions of stars, nebulae, potentially, um, no, probably not planets yet, but yeah, just, just a lot, a lot of a lot of hot and, and dense stuff happening in the early Yeah. And and all of the well, and it's like like there's like all the matter and then all of the different pieces that came together as well. Like 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 what I'm kind of like going towards now is it's like, okay, when did gravity show up? When did time show up? When did forces show up? Like just like our natural forces. And that I think fascinates me a little bit because it sounds like time and gravity go hand in hand. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think all the questions um, that you just asked would sort of, they're, they're, kind of answered through like the big bang theory is it's right now it stands that time started when the big bang happened that uh gravity also it started when the big bang happened that things started to expand things started to form and that's how we understand time that's how we process time and so if you really were to sort of date back according to how long things live in the universe um it would show that well things first started to form um around the 13.8 billion years ago which is the current estimate um so it's it's thought that yeah that like all those things actually happened at a critical point of existence but the bigger question is like well was there something before that because as we just talked about with the nebula uh and the stars or nebulae plural nebulas <laughs> either way um there's a nebula star nebula star nebula star was it universe no universe, universe, no universe. So, or was it like a collapse, like big crunch, and then big yeah. bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch, big bang? That's that's what really keeps me up. <laughs> oh yeah, I absolutely like. I hate like I just got goosebumps everywhere right now because whenever you think about time, you're like, yeah, but what was before that? It's just like yes. humans cannot comprehend, like. Our, our our minds cannot comprehend outside of time. Like I actually remember as a child, the first time I was just like laying on my bed one day, like reading horse books. And then I was like, time. And I had this like total little crisis at seven years old. And I was like trying to comprehend it. And I just remember I was like crying. I was like, my head hurts. <laughs> it's just so hard to think about an infinity. And yeah. Ugh. Yeah, it is. There's a proposal not to digress too much, but um, Hawking has to do a lot with black holes. Stephen Hawking, um, who's no longer with us today, but he was working on a proposal right before he passed away called the No Boundary Proposal. And this 
really blows me away. I've made a couple of YouTube videos on it, just truly trying to understand it. The first time I heard about it was at a lecture during the World Science Festival in New York. And um, it's one of, there's a bunch, it's like a week of awesome lectures from uh, a bunch of different quantum physicists and, and astrophysicists as well. And um, this was the first time I heard about the no battery proposal, which basically says that rather than there being a point of non-existence that then spawned into existence, that there actually always was some form of infinite existence that there was something that had already like some form of matter some form of space that may have existed before our concept of time did and that a time clock eventually began and then once that began it may have caused this sort of effect of expansion and the universe to grow into what it is today um, and that's my my basic understanding the, the proposal is just so much more dense than than what i just said um but I am not doing research with uh, Stephen Hawking at the moment. <laughs> so that's well, and that's just the thing is it's like, yeah, like an Einstein and a Hawking, like minds like that are few and far between. And it's like, you know, us common folk, it's very hard for us to comprehend things like that. Like, I'm not saying that like any of us are dumb. I'm saying we're all really, really smart. But those concepts are just that challenging to wrap our brains around and i don't think the human mind is entirely equipped to think about things that are completely outside of our existence and and trying to understand time and time space is i think one of those things i think time is one of the hardest things for humans to comprehend because it's totally untangible and we exist within it like we exist within time more than anything else like any other element um, sorry, not element, but like law, we're almost like learning how to control it in some ways. It's like we're flirting with controlling gravity. We're flirting with controlling different things. But it's like time is our absolute master and we cannot change that yet. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but there are theories out there and especially like what's portrayed in Interstellar. When they land on Miller's planet, there's the whole fiasco that happens and they go down there and they're like, hey, one minute down there's, what was it, seven years up mm -hmm. here or something like something like that. I actually can't remember. Sorry, listeners. Yes, it you is. Can, You're correct. You guys can correct me in the comments. And if you guys do have the correct answer to that, please uh, drop a comment. Let me know. And while we're at that, if you guys are enjoying this conversation, please like, listen, subscribe, share. This is a new podcast. And the only way that YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and any of those other platforms are going to discover us is if you guys like and share. So that's my two-second pitch. Let's jump back into Miller's planet. So they go down to this planet and there's the whole, you know, issue with she, you know, she wanted to go get the research and then they had the issue with the waves. And then when they go back up, it had been so much time that had passed. And I think that that part of the movie my husband absolutely hated it. Like he was like, why are we watching this movie? It's awful. And I'm like, but this is the good stuff. Like this is the deep existential, like cosmic horror that I just live for. So can we, <laughs> yes, same. can we talk a little bit about how time works around gravity and its connection? And I also like, if, if there was anything you were, getting to please finish your thoughts on those too but i'm just so curious about time's interaction with gravity yeah i mean that's such a big thing to unpack um i mean the movie i think did such a great job of kind of i, I would say even just conveying the emotional aspect of it um and to sort of tie just a little bit back to how you were saying like um uh, of the way that our minds were compared to say like einstein and hawking is i think is two main components and one is like extreme open-mindedness where I think we tend to really restrict ourselves because of this confinement of time and understanding that. But if we can remove that concept of time for just a moment, or at least pretend to, then we might be able to have a bit more insight into how these things are really happening, how these things are existing, how Hawking and Einstein have been able to understand this. And I think that the main tools for that is one, uh, mathematics that is, I mean, theoretical physics is based in mathematics like very, very heavily. Um, and that's how I would say Hawking and Einstein had been able to really 
put this to language, a lot of these discoveries, a lot of these theories um, and realizations. I mean, Einstein predicted black holes before the first black hole was ever discovered. Um, he he wrote his paper on uh, special relativity in 1905, then published it with gravity on general relativity in 1915, and also with the help of, of mathematics. Um, and just one more small bit I would say is also artificial intelligence might be able to really help give us that bit of insight where we are pretty limited by our sort of humanness that I almost wonder if sort of this uh, this 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 other way of thinking uh this this the way that artificial intelligence works might be able to play a role with mathematics to actually help break this all down into a language that us humans can't understand um so that's something wow. that I think would be really interesting down the road um if if that even makes any sense what just no, that does. No, actually, I understand what you said completely because it's like I like playing around with things like Midjourney and ChatGPT, and it's you know I, I I will always say that the human mind is the most incredible thing in existence. Like I, yeah. I'm a fan of humans, but I also love the tools that we have invented that can produce creative answers that we can't quite comprehend. Reality check. The science of fiction. You're, so you're you're a student. You're studying all of this. Is there any conversation in the um, astronomy or astrophysics world about specific AI that they might be using to discover some of these answers? Like, I don't think it's ChatGPT. <laughs> Gosh, you know, there there definitely are ways that um, AI can play a really important role. And I'm just thinking one back to my research I did first as an undergraduate at the Hayden Planetarium in New York, and it was um, I remember it was the first time I learned how to code. In Python language, I first started learning about Python language, and um, I had to basically sift through so much data that came in through the Hubble Space Telescope. I was studying protoplanetary disks at the time, and just thinking about how that program had to run, I had to go back, update it constantly. Where if you used artificial intelligence as a tool, just sort of write a command, say, "Hey, sift through all this data, find these parameters." You know, so much information could be gathered within a fraction of the time that it would have taken in prior ways of studying the cosmos, in prior ways of sifting through data, basically. And so uh, there's definitely ways, I bet, today that astrophysicists are using artificial intelligence to help bring themselves closer to information about the cosmos. Um, I definitely don't doubt it. I can't really name a few off the top of my head that I exactly know of, but that's just an example that... um, I personally had experience with and how I imagine that AI could definitely play a, a good role. Um, so I bet I bet that there's ways. I did just see, I got to double check this, but I saw, I was scrolling on Instagram and saw some kind of post about AI discovering some kind of, I think it was a, a supernova explosion that hadn't been detected yet by astronomers. I'm curious, I'm not unconfirmed. If you guys confirmed it, you know, comment it below. <laughs> I'll double check it. I did come across that Instagram, just haven't had a moment to look into it just yet. Saw it this morning. Um, but if that's true, that would be pretty awesome. I'd say that is cool. <laughs> so, that is cool. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, the AI is awesome. So so let's get back to um, yes the 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 relationship between time and gravity because that's um that's one. It's like I feel like I have like probably like a second grader's understanding of it, but uh, it's it's still hard to wrap my head around. Can you explain that more to me and just the yes. average listener? Because that's your that's your jam, girl. Yeah, yeah. So I guess kind of going backwards to where I'm talking about like unpacking how the 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 uh, movie really started to kind of break down um, time dilation. What I was going to say back then was just that I think it really touched on an emotional part of the human experience during that movie, which was when you mentioned Heidi already seeing the age that Romley went through, um, which was uh, that one astronaut who stayed on the, on the, the, the space shuttle or space station, I think it was just the spaceship, um, as the other two uh, went down um, to Miller's planet. And they came back and he was just so much older. And so that was number one, kind of hit the, the tone of what time dilation can feel like as an experience, what it looks like, how we process it, but not what actually is happening. So um, the way I like to think about it, and I did uh, see this in a uh, nasa.gov post, it was a blog post, basically saying, I'm going to actually just read the quote real quick. It said, time can change. Time passes slower as you're approaching a body of mass in space. And so 
body of masses in space, as we mentioned before, they have a gravitational effect on things around them. Thinking about how the, the moon is orbiting around Earth because the Earth is bigger than the moon. The Earth has a lot of uh, gravitational effect on the moon. It's slightly curving space-time, and it's pulling the moon in towards us. Um, if you've ever seen sort of an example of someone stretching a fabric, um, uh, like just a, a pair of leggings or something like that, and you put a heavy object in the middle, I mean, we're talking about weight here. We're on Earth, so we have the acceleration due, due to gravity here. I'll break all that down in just a moment. But if you put a few marbles on that fabric, the marbles are going to get pulled in towards that you know, more massive object. That's kind of a good way to sort of think about the concept of general relativity is that a body of mass in space will quite literally cause the fabric of space-time to warp. And and what that is, again, just meaning is it has a gravitational effect on things around it and it's attracting them towards it. Um, so think about how the sun has these eight planets, these eight main bodies spinning around it, orbiting around it. And that's because the sun has such a large mass um, comparative to the planets that it has a very strong gravitational effect on us. Um, now, I'm specifically not using the word force. We can definitely use the word force, but it really is kind of affecting the other planets, pulling them in towards it, towards the sun, and we're spinning around it. Um, but time dilation uh, is this concept that as you are around different bodies, of mass in space, time is going to be a little different comparative to wherever you're maybe from. So if we're from Earth, we're used to time moving at a certain pace here on Earth for us. We live for 100 years. Um, but if you're on, say, another planet or you're on a black hole, time is going to be a lot uh, different compared to here on Earth. And uh, pretty um I guess sort of small example I'd like to mention is sort of thinking about how long does it take you to drive to your local grocery store? So if you are moving probably at an average of like maybe 35 miles per hour, that's a pretty common speed limit for sort of like residential roads. You're moving 35 miles per hour and you're going to hit a few stoplights. It might take you maybe five minutes to get to the grocery store. What if you limited yourself to only driving five miles per hour, you're going to be moving a lot slower. And so it's going to probably take you closer to maybe like 15 to 20 minutes to get to that grocery store. And so what happens here is say now you're close to a black hole. To you, you're perceiving time as moving slower. But for all your friends back on Earth, you're actually moving much faster than your friends back on Earth. That's my kind of general understanding of, of how huh. time dilation is, is working. Um, there's definitely more we can get, it, we can get into with this. Um, I, I did write a few more notes. So I've got a few more points to sort of mention here, but that's that's a general idea to, to start with, to try and digest, I guess. And that, and that does make a lot of sense to me. Um, so, so, cause it's like, it seems like in theory we can move forward in time because if somebody's on a planet where time is sped up like miller's planet and somebody else is away from that gravitational influence the ones who are on that planet are essentially moving faster they're moving at a faster speed and then when they rejoin um their their friends outside of that time influence they've essentially traveled through time but we could not let's yeah. say hypothetically travel backwards through time is that correct yeah, I mean, no one's done it. <laughs> and I think even theoretically would not be possible because um, there's not a point of slowing time down so much where you can actually reverse it um, from, I think, as much information as is out there when it comes to time dilation, it comes to really comparing two different clocks. Um, it comes to comparing one clock in one location and another clock in another location and um, seeing if one of them is going to move faster than the other versus actually rewinding your very own existence to a point where you can go backwards. Um, 
But there is one more thing I did want to mention, which is um, it's a little bit of a, not a diagram, it's a small demo and Heidi, well, I'm not sure you'll be able to necessarily see it, but I'll explain it for also our listeners here. I'm holding up um, my mouse pad and I marked two points on my mouse pad with two post-it notes. One of them is the letter A, one is the letter B. And we're going to turn this into a black hole. But what we're going to do first is we're going to take our ruler and I'm going to just go ahead and measure um, how many inches it's going to take to get from one, oh, from point A to point B. So from end to end, we're going to say that's about nine inches. So nine inches and we are flat. This mouse pad is totally flat. It's on one straight plane. Um, Based on Newton's first law of motion, an object is going to continue moving in a straight direction and a straight plane unless it's been disturbed or touched by anything else. Um, and so objects generally are going to be moving um, untouched in one direction. Body motion stays in motion. So what's happening now is with black holes, the gravity is so intense. I'm now warping my mouse pad and bending it to a point where A and B are nearly touching. They are super mm -hmm. close to one another. Now I take my ruler and measure the distance between these two, and they've now come to about four inches. So now it looks like the distance has gone from nine inches to four inches. This is again theoretically what is happening within the worm within the black hole, excuse me, within the black hole. Time, the, the very fabric of space is being warped. And since space and time are a continuum, they have always been linked together, those two words, space and time. You can't meet your friends at a location without telling them what time you're meeting them. You can't meet someone at a certain time without telling them which location to meet them at. Space and time have been continually interlaced with each other. And so if we have a body of mass large enough that's warping the fabric of space-time, you are now shortening the amount of time that it takes to, to travel from point A to point B. So kind of like what I mentioned earlier, if you're going 35 miles per hour, you're going to get there in five minutes. If you're going five miles per hour, you're going to probably get there in 15, 20 minutes. It's going to take you a longer time. So this is another way I like to sort of conceptualize uh, what's happening when it comes to time dilation, what's happening when it comes to black holes. Uh, most of the understanding of black holes is that their mass, and we'll get into a few masses like the black hole at the center of our galaxy, their mass is so, so big compared to Earth, so big compared to, to the sun, that for us small humans, um, things are going to be extremely strong gravitationally and extremely warped space timelines. And that time is just going to feel so different compared to here on Earth. Um, and this is where, again, that, that, that theory comes in around time dilation uh, when it comes to black holes, when it comes to big bodies of mass in space versus, say, um, you know, being here on Earth, which even small, small, I think there's been small percentages measured of time dilation happening even here on Earth close to the ground versus higher up elevated away from the ground. And I don't have all that, that too, data, but yes. Yeah, I've seen the diagrams, um, you know, valleys versus mountains. There's it, it's barely negligible, but there's decimal points of differences of gravity's influence. So it's like yes. maybe, maybe down the road, uh, researchers in longevity can figure out optimal elevation points for longevity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I saw the percentage, I believe, and, and maybe if someone can, can comment it below, but I think I saw 0.04 or 0.004%. Um, of a difference of time dilation from the ground up to a pretty high altitude. I don't exactly know what the altitude was, but I was looking something up before this and I, I did come across that number as far as what's been measured here on earth. Um, so that's, again, you know, not, not certain, super easy to really comprehend, but it, it has been measured and it, and it does exist. So that's pretty, pretty fascinating to really think about. So island time really is a thing. It slows yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> Love I think that. you're onto yeah. something. I think margaritas help with that too. Um, Definitely. <laughs> no, that is super. That is super interesting. And you explain that in such a like a, such an easy way that I actually don't feel like I have a follow up question. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I understand. 
And I know that it's not as simple as that, but they do say that, um, you know, somebody who truly understands a concept can make it seem easy. And black holes in time and space are some of the most challenging concepts for us to think of. So thank you so much for explaining that to me and to everybody else in such a simple way for us to digest. I'm, I am kind of curious though, because you have a lot of experiences like an influencer and an educator and you work, you, you work with a lot of different people to help teach about astronomy and astrophysics theories. Is, is the public's perception of black holes, um, has it been like affected by media or are there any really big like myths or misconceptions that you'd like to address? Because I just think that Hollywood can do such a great job of educating or misinforming people about really everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which is why I think so many people applauded their stellar because they just did such a good job of really making it like closely scientifically accurate um, or at least as close to the theories say currently. Um, but I would say the general consensus is a lot of people are, are so curious about black holes. It is like one of the hottest topics, I think, on YouTube. It's like it's such a fun topic to talk about. I'm constantly getting questions about it. Uh, I constantly have questions about it also. And um, I think that there are definitely a few a few myths out there. One specifically that I was pointed out. Uh, I, I was this was pointed out to me when I was in high school by my first astronomy teacher. And it was black holes don't suck. And, and it was uh, kind of also a joke because it's like, because they're awesome. Uh, but it was more just that like, <laughs> it was more just that like, um, they're not like pulling things in from space per se. There is actually a point of no return with black holes called the event horizon. And it's actually once you pass that, then you're like completely going to get pulled in by the true black hole, the actual black hole that is somewhere deep, deep within that dark space but if you're just outside that event horizon you're actually like good to go like you're fine you're apparently not going to get pulled in because black holes are not they're not a vacuum cleaner they're not sucking things in there's not this you know yeah so it's it's a little bit different um than kind of i think this perception that you know black holes are strong they're attracting things in we're talking about gravity and and although this is true because around a black hole, there tends to be a lot of accumulated matter and a lot of stuff that tends to pull around it, which increases gravity because it's increasing mass. But the black hole itself, there's sort of this safety zone that that or danger zone, I guess, not safety zone. You don't want to pass it because then it's dangerous. The danger zone, the event horizon, the point of no return. And uh, that's that region that once you do cross over that, um, it's that's an area where the uh, gravitational effects, you know, they, they, it's, the gravitational effects have been measured to be so powerful that from our understanding, it's moving so fast that it excels light speed that the only way anything can escape would have to move faster than light speed. And as of right now, that is our cosmic speed limit. There's been nothing that's been measured to move faster than the speed of light in a vacu vacuum, which is the 300,000 kilometers a second. And so because of this, uh, you know, we might not really have any luck of traveling through a black hole and making it out like they did in Interstellar <laughs> to bring us back to the movie. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, that, that was an interesting thing that I think really stood out to me, but there's so much mystery about black holes. Who knows? Maybe it's possible that, that you know, a, a spaceship could travel through a black hole and, and actually survive. But right now it's, it's not necessarily likely unless that spaceship happened to have moved faster than light speed. Um, in which case, according to Einstein, if an object is moving close to the speed of light, uh, like a body of mass like you and me, we're, we're made of mass. That's the amount of material composed in an object. If we're moving close to the speed of light, we're actually going to be accumulating more matter because we're, well, we're passing through a lot of things in space. So we're going to be accumulating wow. matter. We're going to get bigger. And so as we get bigger, what did we learn earlier, our gravitational effect, our gravitational force gets stronger, which means it would take more energy to move faster. And so there's kind of this like, this, this like paradox almost. It's, it's like, if wow. you're going to be, yeah. So it's like, if you're going to have 
going to get bigger, then you need more energy to move faster, but you can't get any more energy because you're bigger. And so you're getting slowed down because of your gravity. And so, so, uh, wow. so right now there's, it's not known that we can move faster than the speed of light. <laughs> yeah. That makes me think of like, you know, you see hummingbirds like zipping around. They're so fast. And then you think about giants and how they're like raw, like it's almost <laughs> like they're slow motion. It's like, so that's an interesting point. Um, and then yeah. it's like, this is a total like side note, but the book by Michael Crichton, uh, Spear, there is a very, and I'm not going to ruin that book at all because it is my, probably my favorite book. Uh, but there's a very interesting discovery in that book early on where they, uh, stumble upon a ship that conceptually was traveling through black holes. And there's some very interesting, um, conceptual technologies developed on that ship to allow those explorers to travel through black holes. That is, I'm going to probably do a whole episode on Sphere one day because I love it so much, but you should like, it's super interesting stuff. So, so it sounds like there's that safe zone, but don't black holes, do they get bigger? Um, that's a really good question. So right now, um, the theory is that as more matter falls into the black hole, because more matter is being, you know, attracted in towards that, uh, you know, that that surrounding area around the event horizon. And if matter keeps falling into the black hole, pulled in by the gravity, the, the, the gra- black hole is, what's happening is, I'll, I'll take that one again. Right now, the theory says that as more matter is falling into the black hole, it is causing the points of the black hole. Imagine you're, you're kind of going down a tunnel. So imagine you're falling into a tunnel and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It is getting denser as more matter falls in because it's getting more compressed. So imagine a giant compression chamber and it's squishing and squishing and squishing. And so right now it's, yes, they, they you know, will be getting bigger. They are getting bigger as more matter falls in, um, but they're also getting denser, which means they're getting more massive, but they're getting tinier and tinier and tinier. It's squished. So bigger in a sense of more mass, but not in the in necessarily in the sense of size, um, but getting more compressed in like the middle. Again, imagine a compression chamber and more matter is getting pushed in. And so it's getting really, really squashed down to this sort of this point of singularity is, is right now where the theory is, which is this idea that is it going to be infinitely dense? Is there a point where it can't get any denser that it almost loses all concepts of surface, all concepts of space, all concepts of time? Is it ripping through the very idea of, of what space-time is? We don't quite know, uh, but we do understand that, yes, more matter is falling in, so it's got to be getting more dense um, within that black hole. Uh, so kind of crazy, mm-hmm. but... Um, I guess the only way, though, they could get bigger is, as we mentioned before, if two smaller black holes collide, they could form a medium-sized black hole, and um, that would be that intermediate black hole. Um, and those tend to be, so we'll talk about size for a little bit, um, those tend to be a few hundred solar masses. What that just is is um, the mass of our sun, so taking a um, hundred of our suns and squishing them together. But then you have supermassive black holes like Gargantua in the movie Interstellar. Interstellar. Um, and that one, let's see, I wrote it down. That one had a mass of 4.2 million solar masses. Oh, wow. Yeah. But then it was something really kind of crazy is, oh, excuse me. No, sorry. The mass of the supermassive black hole Gargantua at the center of in, in, in the Interstellar was 100 million solar masses, 100 million. And I want to do a little a bit lot. of technicality for a moment. Yeah, a lot. 100 million of our suns squished together into a black hole. This is what Gargantua, the fictional black hole, is in Interstellar. And our supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, known as Sagittarius A, is 4.2 million solar masses. So that's 4.2 million suns. So think about that. For about that million. Uh, that's so big. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to even comprehend it <laughs> Honestly, it's like, how do we come? Yeah, I'm not even going to try. I'm just like, yep, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, a a really fun thing, I'm going to do like a little shout out to a fun software uh, gaming 
software uh, called um, uh, Universe Sandbox. Um, it's really fun to play with. Uh, Universe Sandbox, you're able to sort of swap objects out with each other and you could put like a black hole uh, where the sun is and sort of see what happens. Really cool stuff. Um, so you can, can maybe con conceptualize what that would be like uh, if you ever want to play with that. I also heard Kerbal Space Program too is, is a really fun. I love Kerbal. Yeah. Uh that's like oh, my yeah. stupid little games. <laughs> you know, I still haven't played it yet. Is it is it just like super fun? It's just silly. Like it's so cute because there's like Werner von Kerbal. It's like and then um, oh my gosh, I just blinked on it. the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building. It's like you're basically yeah. playing around in there and you're building your little rockets. It's like I'm like that's such a great game for kids. So I'm like I think more kids should play Kerbal and less kids should play whatever brain melting games are out there now there's there's a lot of them yeah so 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 it sounds like um if there was a black hole in our solar system we wouldn't be at risk unless we were within that danger zone yeah yeah the only thing that would probably happen to us is you know we don't have that warmth from the sun so we probably freeze to death um, <laughs> so we wouldn't we wouldn't survive because it would be too cold um, okay. But we likely wouldn't get pulled in depending on the size of the black hole that you're putting in place to the sun. Um, so kind of looking at like the diameter of the black hole. And actually, um, there was a black hole that just recently took the place of the biggest supermassive black hole ever detected in our universe, known as Phoenix A. Um, it recently just replaced uh, Ton 618, which was considered to be the biggest supermassive black hole in the universe. And Phoenix okay. A is... Um, a hundred billion solar masses. Wow. So it is so much bigger than Gargantua. So much bigger than Gargantua. Yeah. That's so insane. really crazy. Um, so that's that's a pretty interesting one to sort of think about. And I think it has a really big diameter also. I don't exactly know what it is off the top of my head, but um, so not only is it very massive, but it's very wide. It's really, really wide. Um, so I did want to sort of nitpick a bit about like the the fictional aspect of Interstellar with comparing our black hole with the black hole in the movie. So Gargantua with Sagittarius A. And I don't know necessarily, I'm so curious to hear if anyone else is like bothered to try and do these calculations, but comparing how in the movie, you know, how you said that um, they mentioned that it was one hour on gar around gargantua so on the um uh on miller's planet so they're near the event horizon of gargantua they said would be seven years on earth well current estimates of sagittarius a our supermassive black hole at the milky way galaxy is that one minute at the event horizon of the supermassive black hole Sagittarius A would be 700 years on Earth. So one minute at, yeah, at our supermassive black hole would be 700 years on Earth compared wow. to the movie, which said uh, one hour was seven years. And this is where I have an issue because remember we talked about those two different sizes. Our black hole is about 4 million solar masses, but gargantua is a hundred million solar masses so if it's bigger shouldn't the time dilation be much more drastic yeah. so with ours it's 700 years with one minute with theirs it's seven years with one hour uh yeah. so that seems a little you know and, and and this was probably a moment where you know obviously christopher nolan's like all right well we got to be able to make it realistic so murph is still alive by the time yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> little bit yeah. of cinematic magic yes. but when yes. like like i'm still kind of like stuck on what you said about like it freezing like so wouldn't hypothetically miller's planet have been frozen over because wasn't that black hole from the sun of that planet yeah that is, that is an interesting thing um they did show that there was a pretty distinguished accretion disk around it. So I'm curious if maybe there was a nearby star that they did show us that helped mm -hmm. warm the planet um, because the planet was pretty bright by the time they were there. Yeah. So I I'm not sure if that would be it. Um, and it, you know, it could be also that it was a hundred billion solar masses. And so it may have had quite a lot of 
again, accreted matter around the black hole. So potentially there was a lot of a lot of stars that can generate a lot of heat and solar radiation. Whereas if we maybe had a smaller black hole at the center of our galaxy, um, that it, you know, we probably would freeze to death. If it was a small, like a small black hole, like a stellar mass, um, then because we wouldn't really have that heat. But maybe if there was a much bigger black hole at the center of our galaxy, if it wasn't big enough to surpass our orbit, where it would engulf the Earth and we would survive, maybe there would be some kind of nearby star um, that's been accumulated around this black hole that can keep us warm, potentially. Um, but for right now, if there was something big enough, we'd probably have the issue of, of it surpassing where we're located right now. And so it probably would engulf us. Um, but if it is a smaller black hole, we'd probably freeze. So I think what happened in the movie was that the planet must have been located very kind of far respectively enough away from the black hole where it actually um wouldn't be like i guess it wouldn't be close to that it's just like sort of that goldilocks zone not too close not too far oh but close enough where maybe it's picking up on some kind of warmth or heat from a nearby object um some kind of star that was an institution just or it wasn't too close where it was you know going to you know, be within the event horizon scale size size of 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 the black hole. Uh, I don't I don't know. I'm getting like twisted up in my own thoughts about this. <laughs> I know black holes. Like I think conceptualize it is, but that's why it's so fascinating. And I actually think that's why people are so curious about it. Um, and here's like a total like other other um, thing. My husband is completely obsessed with Lord of the Rings. Like he read the Cimmerillion. He loves Lord of the Rings fandom. And there's a whole science behind, I mean, Lord of the Rings is amazing. It's an amazing novel. But one of the reasons why the fandom is so deep is because the Lord of the Rings universe is so complex. And every time you discover the answer to one of the mysteries, it opens up 10 other mysteries. Where it's like you learn about the Balrogs and the, um, the my, 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 I don't know, this is his thing, the Mitor, the my, Murgoth, whatever it is. But it's like there's these infinite universes to discover within Lord of the Rings. And I feel like it's similar with black holes because every time we answer a question, there's more questions and that drives our obsession. Like we just want to know. We get more and more curious. It's like I also feel the same way about like Five Nights at Freddy's. I've just gotten into that fandom in the last few years and I'm like, I need to know where did Freddy Fazbear get his immortality? So every time that there's something that's really complicated and complex and deep, it just makes us more obsessed and we just need to know. We just keep searching for those answers. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So until the day we can maybe find a Miller's planet near a black hole, then we'll have these answers, you know, but it's questions possibly answered. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing field of astrophysics, it's just black holes. And we haven't even touched on wormholes at all in this conversation. I know, I know. It also were predicted by Einstein and, you know, and so like maybe it's only a matter of time before we actually will come across wormhole. Like I, I, I believe that we might actually find one, you know, one day, like, I don't think it's super far-fetched where it may exist because I just think that we thought that black holes were too far-fetched and look at that where it's just, they're popping up everywhere. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you just think about like the beauty of a sunrise is far-fetched. It's like existence itself is far-fetched. It's like everything is far-fetched until it's proven. And I think that every single day is an opportunity for humans to like, just to take that reminder to not take anything for granted because what our, what is our modern convenience and technology would have been like absolute magic for ancient people. And mm-hmm. it just gets me excited. I read, um, wow, I'm totally blanking on Dr. Michio Kakao. He has oh, yeah. an interesting book, The Future of Humanity. And I read that and I was like, yes, this fuels my curiosity like you wouldn't believe. And he mentions in that book how, you know, he says that same thing. Ancient people would have thought that our modern life is magic. They would have thought that phones were magic. That was the only explanation. And I'm just so curious to think about the future technologies that our our um, offspring are going to produce, and it will seem like magic to us. So, mm-hmm. you know, the wormholes, it's like that seems so mysterious. The multiverse, other dimensions mm-hmm. with doppelgangers, it seems so mysterious, but it's like, maybe we'll reach a future one day where it's just like that is science fact 
and that's the life we're living and you're going on vacations to other universes and like kids are still going to be the exact same and they're going to be bored. They're like, mom, come on. Universe three is so long. (laughs) It's just like, cause we're always going to be humans no matter what. And, (laughs) and I actually do want to ask you about that. Like what kind of technologies are we are like, what kind of emerging technologies are we advancing right now that are helping with our understanding of black holes? Like what are some of the big questions we're asking that some of these technologies are hopefully going to be answering in the near future? Like I know James Webb telescope was a game changer are there any other technologies coming out that can help us answer some of these questions? Gosh, you know, there, there's got to be. Um, just give me a moment to really think about that. I, I might not know any, honestly. Other than you mentioned James Webb, there's definitely going to be some, I think, great, um, just great telescopes generally, both on Earth and also space telescopes that may be able to help us with that. Um I know with exoplanets, there's TESS, the Transiting Exoplanetary Survey Satellite. So not necessarily looking into black hole information. Um, but I think some things on Earth that are really interesting is, um, well, there's the Gravitational Wave uh, Observatory. So um, LIGO, Laser Interparameter Gravitational Wave Observatory. I can't believe I have that. Just memorized them <laughs> off the top of my head. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> a nerd alert um but it's uh, i know that's done a lot of work with detecting gravitational waves which are sort of these ripple effects throughout space time that happen when say black holes collide and i believe that was what actually helped lead to the discovery of the intermediate black hole i've mentioned like just so many times in our, in our interview today um because uh when black holes will collide they're going to cause a a very big disturbance um, in the, within the, the fabric of space-time that could be detected um, through just these these very uh, sensitive pieces of equipment that that's the majority of the understanding that I have about what exactly they're doing to detect it. I've got to go visit it sometime and actually check it out. But uh, I know LIGO is is definitely a contributing factor to, um, to that. There's also the Event Horizon Telescope that brought us the image of um, that first black hole, I believe it also got us an image of Sagittarius A, the black hole at our gal- at center of our galaxy. Yeah, what year, what year did those images come out? Gosh, that first one was, I remember it was, I think it was April 16th. It was the date. Um, and I think it was 2019, 2018. 2.48 p.m. <laughs> 2.48 p.m. Well, I'll always remember it. I mean, it might have been at like 1 p.m. because I was I was actually on a photo shoot that day. Uh, it was when I was still modeling in New York. And I remember stopping the shoot to watch the press conference. I was like, guys, we need to watch this right now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. everyone's like, uh, no, ma'am, you're working right now. We're sorry. Like model can't yeah. stop the shoot. And I'm like, oh, well, this is more important than everything mm-hmm. right now. And um, and so I've, I'll always remember that day. Like I intentionally had to stop just to watch this press conference when they revealed the image. Um, so it was a huge deal. And I, and I believe it was 2019 was the date. Um, and I believe it was April. So yeah, it was a huge moment. It was, that was like so exciting. Because uh, we were able to see so much um, of the black hole. I know like a lot of people were like, oh, look at this fuzzy image. There's so many memes about it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that was so it was so cool. And then like also like side note audience, uh, Athena was scouted by America's Next Top Model at one point. So I just want to add for all and not just not just ladies, but like women and men. It's like you can be both. You can be brains. You can be beautiful. You can be weird. You can be introverted, extroverted. It's like science is for everybody. Like science, like you don't have to be like some nerdy dude with like a buzz cut in a lab coat like you can be anybody with any lifestyle and experience and interests and be a scientist and that's one thing that i do love about you athena is that you just like you kind of you're just you're doing it all <laughs> oh thank you heidi and you know i've had some of the most fascinating conversations um, around these concepts actually like on shoots with other models who have i mean i've met so many models who have degrees in stem uh, that I've met like other people uh, in other jobs and other workforces. I mean, it was like really fascinating. So I've had some really awesome conversations with um, just creatives in the fashion industry in general um, around these really complex concepts 
in astrophysics. And that, that really made for a great, great uh, decade long career. <laughs> well, it's so crazy that. because there's like, there's just so many, like, it's just like the dumb model stereotype. And it's like, actually, yeah. no, that's false. Like, there's a, uh, so I actually, so, so Athena and I, and I, so listeners, this is just for your FYI, Athena and I met through Instagram, I guess, because we started following each other because we had both attended um, a really cool opportunity at NASA. And we didn't meet at the same event, but we went to um, different ones where we got to interview some of the subject matter experts um, at these events. I went to the Crew 7 launch. Athena, which one were you at? My first one was for the Gozar weather satellite, which is what tells our iPhones what the weather is. Um, And then I went to another one. I went to two other ones. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. It was for the launch of the InSight lander on Mars. So that was really cool. Yeah, that's exciting. But no, at mine, um, one of the participants there was Miss United States. She's beauty. She's grace. She's Miss United States. And she has a STEM degree. And she let us all sign her lab coat. She's like, normally I only let kids sign my lab coat, but I'll let you guys sign it too. And it's just so cool to see that there's just like, it really does break through a lot of stereotypes. Like even Natalie Portman's a scientist and that's not something that everybody knows about her. And I just think that that's super cool. That, yeah, that's so awesome too with a lab coat. I love that. I know. Oh she was awesome. Has she posted any photos of it yet? She's posted so many great photos. Like I was looking around at like everybody else's like content that they were like making. And I'm like, uh, well, I have an Android phone, so I hope this turns out well. Um, but <laughs> I just wanted to ask, were there any other because I I can I, I feel like I just get so excited with these topics sometimes. Was there anything else that you had like really wanted to share about black holes? that we didn't quite get to before we get to our reality check moment? Um, briefly looking at my notes for just a moment. I, you know what, just for fun, I'm going to show the camera just in case we decide we want to share that. <laughs> I do this all the time whenever I'm like watching a lecture or something. Just so many amazing things to talk about. Um, you know, I think we've got on everything. Uh, let me just think for one moment. It was There was something I was thinking about, but we might get to it actually when we talk about the the reality check. Um, it was Christopher Nolan concept concept of comparison between those two. No, yeah, let's move it. Let's move forward. Okay, here it is. Sorry, everybody. thank you for that. <laughs> no, here it is. The moment of truth. So, Athena, is the time dilation portrayal of Miller's planet in the movie Interstellar scientifically accurate on our one to five reality check score? Where would you rank it? Let me look back at the voice that you remind me what the speculative one was, the full name. Oh, uh, that's I, what I read on my at. other. Oh, well, the the four, the speculative, speculative science is a four. I have that on a speculative different science. Yes, different so like from five to one. Okay, yes, it was number. Okay, so I'll rate it at a speculative science number four. I would say that um, kind of just following modern theories, they did a great job. Made a few adjustments kind of here and there um just to sort of make it really like awesome for the movie uh, such as i think that time dilation at the black hole the fact that the black hole is moving really close to the speed of light also which uh we didn't mention earlier i thought was really interesting not sure necessarily on the the the, the truth behind that and, and the possibility of that actually existing but i think other than that they really hit the nail on the head with this one i think they did a great job with um even creating the artificial gravity in that end scene for the O'Neill cylinder, oh, the so uh, cool. that just was amazing. Cooper Station. So I would give it number four, speculative science. That's how I'd say it. That is so cool. And you know what blows my mind is I feel like most of these episodes end up being like fours or fives. Like even some of them that I was like, for sure, this is two. Like for sure, this is like way far fetched. And then I'll talk to some scientists. They're like, oh, no, we're doing that already. I'm like, what? That's terrifying. That's so crazy. <laughs> and so it just like it really just shows um, like this is why I love science fiction. Is it like I kind I kind of think it almost like predicts the future. Like it shows us what's about to happen. And that's what's so yeah. exciting to me about the genre. Yeah, I almost put it at a two. I almost did. And that was because I was like, well, I'm like based on our theories. But then I had to remember well, these are theories. We no one's gone inside a black hole. No one sent anyone inside a black hole. 
Uh, oh, and that was the last thing I did want to talk a little bit about, which was really just the bookcase experience and what it was like that he actually went through the black holes inside the bookcase and then was able to, to come out uh, safely and, you know, not be spaghettified. I thought that was pretty interesting where I think most likely that might not happen, but uh, but we don't know. We never sent anyone inside a black hole. So I had to put it out at number four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then just like the the vortex that the future beings created within that was a just like that's going to be a whole other interesting topic it's like will our will our um not our ancestors our offspring like way far in the future will they be able to build things through time and gravity that can assist us with helping the human race survive like who knows these are these are big questions Um, so Athena, is there, uh, just like, let, let us know, are there any places where people can find you if they have follow-up questions? Are there any projects you're working on that you want to promote, um, or anything else that you want to kind of, uh, promote or say? Yeah, sure. So, um, I made it pretty easy. Uh, my handle is Astro Athens on every single platform, um, I'm really pushing my YouTube channel right now. Um, I just revamped that, launching a really long form video soon when I went to the new um, Starbase uh, facility um, through SpaceX, where they're building the Starship rocket going back to the moon and Mars one day to carry people to Mars. So I did a whole tour and that's going to have videos coming out soon. So I'd love for those for um, anyone listening here to check out what I've got on my YouTube channel, um, but also on Instagram, TikTok, um, I'm Astro Athens, um, and I've got AstroAthens.com. I actually put together also a nice self tour guide ebook if anyone ever wants to visit uh, Starbase. Um, it's really open to the public. It's awesome. I got within feet from three Starship rockets and a booster that all flew to space. Um, well, kind of just went up and back down. They didn't really do anything more than that. Um, so if you guys are interested, check that out. Um, I've got all that also on my website. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, no, that's that's everything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> awesome. No, I, I think it's like, I love your branding. I think it's really fun. And your education that you put out there is so great. I love everything you're doing with the Eclipse. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening today. Let me know if you agree with Athena's reality check score. And if you have anything you wanted to add to the conversation or questions that you might have, please let us know in the comments. And that concludes this episode of Reality Check. Reality Check. The science of fiction.